What's going on, everybody? You are now listening to episode 35 of the best of the best, Maverick's Guide to Success. I am your host, Maverick Levy, and as always, I feel honored that you're tuned in and listening to this podcast. And I used to do this every once in a while, but I've been doing it more often because there's a lot of new listeners listening to the show from all around the globe. So shout out to everyone. But Remember that this podcast is focused on teaching you the shit that is not taught in school, right? There's a lot, a lot, a lot of topics that aren't taught in any level of education, but are essential for life. Some I talk about on the show maybe are not essential in life, but it's still useful information to know if you're interested in that field or that topic. But again, the shit that's not taught in school. I want this to be a resource for all of you so that you can go into life prepared for what it's gonna throw at you, whatever that may be. Switching gears a little bit, I know I have been talking about a giveaway for the past six episodes. I'm sorry it's getting delayed. I am giving the guy one more week to see if he can pull through for this giveaway. And if he cannot, I have a backup. It is still an amazing giveaway. So please stay tuned for that. And real quick, I know I mention it every single week. Go to the website, go to the social media, but a lot of you are starting to utilize it way more. I'm getting DMs. I got a DM from last week's episode about a crypto guy when I asked for one. Someone reached out, gave me one. I reached out to him. Hopefully we can get him on the show. And also, if you haven't visited the website, tbotbpod.com, utilize it. It's a really cool place that I've created for all of you. So you can see the face of the person who is talking behind the microphone that you're listening to. There's ways to contact the guests if you're interested in them. It's just another cool resource, an add-on for this podcast for you to interact with. So check it out. Follow us on social media at TBOTBpod. And when I say us, remember that this podcast is produced by the Dust Brothers. So shout out to them for everything they do. That's the reason you're hearing this sound that is crystal clear through your ears, through your speaker, through your car, whatever it may be. And lastly, everyone, please keep in mind always that the discussions on this podcast are for informational purposes only. I cannot predict and do not guarantee that you will attain a particular result from the information provided. You should always seek professional assistance before making decisions in connection with the topics discussed. Okay, I'm pretty excited for today's interview because I'm going to learn a lot from it. So let's do it. On today's show, I am so happy to welcome Trey Taylor. He is the author of a book called A CEO Only Does Three Things. He is also the CEO of Taylor Insurance Services. Trey, what's going on? How are you? Maverick, so good to be with you today, man. Good to catch up with you again. You know, when Trey and I talked on the phone for all the listeners, we were just talking about this a little bit ago, we really hit it off. So I was excited for the interview. And then Trey, I always, for every guest that comes on the show, I do my research and my due diligence on them. And I was like, wow, he is awesome. So I am excited that you are on the show today. I feel honored to be able to interview. And, you know, as a young entrepreneur myself, 
I will have a lot to learn from this episode, which I know then the listeners can also learn a lot from you as well. But to give everyone some insight into who you are, let's do a few brief background questions. So Trey, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, the suburbs of Atlanta. And then my family is from sort of rural Georgia, and we eventually moved back to rural Georgia. So I have a little bit of time in the suburbs and some time in the rural parts of the state. What's your favorite? Do you prefer the urban or do you prefer the rural? You know, uh, I think it matters what age you are. So at some point, I loved to be urban. At some points, I love to be suburban. And now the older and grouchier I am, uh, the less I want to be around people. So the rural is okay with me at this stage of life. That's so funny. I always say I have this saying. I sometimes will post on my Instagram, like I'm working to disappear. I'm the same way. I like to sort of duck out and and go away from everyone else. So we're definitely on the same page there as well, but no coincidence. So where did you go to college, Trey? I did my undergraduate at Emory University in Atlanta, and I studied uh, history and political economy and finance. Those, those kinds of topics were really interesting to me. And uh, really, the only thing you do with that is to go further into professional education. So it was law school for me at that point. Got it. And so when you were in law school, what did you study in law? What type of law you know, was your focus area? Yeah, it's really strange. And, and you'll understand this, of course. But uh, you, know, you get in and you think you're going to be sort of Perry Mason or law and order or something like that. And then some topic tends to grab you, right? And you gravitate towards maybe the same thing or, or something else entirely. So I knew that I wanted to be involved in corporate law at some level. I took a tax class because you kind of have to. And I was totally amazed by how tax is the secret mover behind American business, and nobody knows it. So I really studied and enjoyed studying, and it made sense to me. Tax law, complex negotiations, and uh, corporate transactions. That's sort of the three things that had my attention in law school. Well, you're giving me some free advertising because all the listeners of the show know that I'm going into my family's tax business. So by you saying that, listen, if you guys do need tax help, our website is levytaxhelp.com. But, you know, that's really great. And I'm excited that you said that because you're probably one of the only people besides the attorneys that work in our office that I have talked to that said tax law was super cool when you were studying it. And it was interesting because I have a passion for it. It's probably just in my blood. But everyone else I talked to, like I had a cannabis attorney, an entertainment attorney on the show, and they're all like, good luck, pretty much, you know, like making me think like, oh, God, what am I getting myself into? So you're giving me some relief on that one. So I appreciate that. The tax bar is pretty small. Like it only lands on a certain, you know, group of people and nobody else wants anything to do with it. So it's a small sort of fraternity of, uh, of ladies and gentlemen who get called to it for sure. But I always thought it was interesting. It was always like learning a secret language. I felt like I knew the Rosetta Stone that other people didn't know because so much of business and business decisions are made to avoid or defer taxes. And um, knowing that, it gave me a lot of influence when I came into the workplace. Absolutely. You couldn't have said it any better. But going along with the background, and then we'll get into the good stuff. When you were a little kid, what did you think you were going to be or what did you want to be? So depending on how little, I think I didn't have that, oh, I'm going to grow up to be a fireman or anything. I don't remember those kinds of things. But I remember a couple of conversations early in my life. One, I was about 11 or 12 and my grandfather, who uh, was in our family business and sort of was the, you know, the genesis of our family fortune, if you will, he took us to the beach, my brother and I. 
And we sat out on the beach, and it was like 5 o'clock, and he had this massive cell phone like you would in 1980 or something like that. And um, he pulled it out, and he talked for a while, and he told us, you know, I just made $1,000 or $5,000 or whatever it was. And we laughed and said, you didn't make any money. You were on the beach with us all day. And he said, no, son, that's exactly how you make money, right? So I kind of took that and said, wow, that sounds good to me. Like entrepreneurship sounds good to me. You know, my dad was very encouraging to go to professional education, like go get a law degree, go be a doctor, go be something where you don't have to, you know, rely on clients coming in and deciding whether they're going to do business with you or not. So he thought that was pretty attractive. So those two things together sort of told me, yeah, I think I want to go and and do something uh, in law and in business. And so that's how I got there. I guess it's a really long-winded answer to the question, which is I pretty much always knew I was going to be a lawyer from about 12 years of age. That's interesting. But you know, it's so funny. And we keep saying we have the same pass and maybe the, you know, a little bit of the same track professionally. But I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer as well, just because I knew um, from a young age what, you know, my family wanted me to do. And then when I turned 18, it was sort of like, okay, this is what I want to do. For a long time, I was like, maybe I don't want to go that route. But that's funny that we have that same sort of idea of what we wanted to do. Mine was a little bit different, but that's hilarious. Again, our paths are are crossing over. But now let's get into the good stuff. I always call it the nitty gritty of the interview. And obviously a big focus is going to be about this book because it seems amazing. And unfortunately, I have not had time to read it yet, but I'm definitely am going to because like I said, there's a lot for me to learn from that as well from someone that is going to be taking over my family's companies currently is in the process of starting up startup companies as well. And because I did my research on you and because my audience is in that younger generation, I want you to give them the background of where your life took you post law school, after graduating, after taking the bar, you know, your first job. And then I believe that would be the best place from doing my due diligence on you, you know, hearing that section of your life. And then we can talk about how you started to write this book, what gave you the motivation, the drive to write this book. So after law school, what was sort of your your path, you know, three or four years after that? Yeah, I had a uh, clerkship in law school with an insurance company that my family represented. And in doing that work with the company, the general counsel uh, left one summer. And when it was time for my clerkship the next summer, he called me and said, you need to come and clerk with me. And I said, well, what are you doing? And he said, I'm in an internet company. And I thought, well, that's cool, but I don't think that's where I want to end up. Anyway, he was persuasive, and I took that second clerkship, and I never actually went back home. Like, I never went back to law school. I actually transferred law school so that I could be closer to that job. And that company was WebMD, which explains sort of all of that decision-making right there. So I was one of the first hundred employees at WebMD. I was the only law clerk that they ever had, I think. And, um, you know, it was really a fun time to be in business. We were making up rules as we went along because nobody knew what to do or what to expect. The market was really rewarding every positive decision. And so you would do a deal on Monday, you'd be in the Wall Street Journal on Thursday, and the stock would tick up by 38 points on Friday, you know, that sort of thing. Oh my God. Yeah, it was extremely satisfying. It was a lot of hard work, and it was like an MBA, you know, in-progress MBA almost. It was very satisfying work for me. So I stayed there for... I don't know, a year and a half, two years, which was a long time at that point. And then I got into the venture business because one of the tasks that we had done at WebMD was to start WebMD Ventures. And I really took a shine 
to that. I really loved the concept of taking capital and deploying it into super high-velocity growth companies. And I still have that passion. I still do that work today. Wow, that's amazing. So now let's shift focus a little bit. But actually, first, I want to go back and say WebMD, aka in my head, because my girlfriend's a hypochondriac, is hypochondriac central, right? I think totally. it, it is very it is very useful, I will say. But the one thing every doctor says is don't Google that. And the first thing you Google is WebMD. So that's pretty hilarious because it's just funny. My girlfriend, when she listens to this, stop being a hypochondriac and listen to someone that was the first hundred employees say totally when they say it's hypochondriac central. <laughs> but moving forward, so now let's Let's talk about this book, right? Give a little bit about what the book is actually about and what it entails, you know, in a short version, and then we'll back up and we'll talk about how you actually ended up writing the book. Yeah. Okay. So the book is uh, basically a handbook for CEOs. If you think about it, the CEO's position is the only job in the entire company that doesn't have a job description, right? Everybody else does. The receptionist does. The COO knows that he's supposed to do this, but not this. The CFO knows you know, the product manager, everybody has a very specific job description on this is how you should spend your time and this is what the success metrics for your position look like. That doesn't really exist for CEOs. Yeah, when I think of a CEO, I think of someone wearing many different hats, right? And being like a Edward Scissorhands where your hands are in a lot of things and you play a lot of different roles within a company. So I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah, exactly right. So I wrote the book to be the job description, but then I sort of, you know, in the process of writing it, had to answer the question for myself. And when you do that, then you have to say, well, are you behaving this way? And I wasn't, of course. Like, I figured out what I should be doing and then wrote a book about it and then wasn't doing it. So I had to revamp my own professional life uh, to match what I think a CEO should be doing. And I'm happy to report that I'm a lot happier, a lot more productive. My companies are much more profitable because of it. And uh, so that's a good sort of... um, you know, laboratory test result that I can share with everybody. And then in the consulting that I do with other companies, uh, we're seeing the same things come true. Wow, that's amazing. So this is definitely a book for any of you that are, you know, inspiring to be a C-level employee or someone like myself, this is definitely a book to read and this is definitely an interview to listen very closely to. So how long ago was this book published? I published it in November of 20. It was an Amazon bestseller relatively quickly. And uh, we bumped books like Traction and Profit First off the top spot for a little while. So that felt really good. Yeah. Wow. So again, another reason why you are the best of the best. So now let's go into the backstory. Obviously, like you just said, you wrote this book because of your work experience, you know, within these type of environments. And you saw firsthand where things were taking a turn, maybe, and in, in what you felt like you could be doing better. So give the listeners the background on it. How did you end up writing this book? How did it come to fruition? So, you know, when I was at WebMD and then when I was in the uh, venture business and and eventually went back in-house in corporate development, I was usually sort of the youngest person in the room when the CEO was in the room doing, you know, the deals or negotiating or doing leadership activities. And so I, you know, I just had a recorder on the whole time. So I was watching really good CEOs do what they did with the eye that I one day would like to be a CEO myself. In 2005, my dad and my mom, they had a really good year in 2004 in their business. And so they went to Vegas, you know, to visit some family, visit some friends. And um, at this point, AOL had hired me for corporate development. They wanted me to do divestitures of about a billion dollars of assets. And so I was really excited to do that job. And they were moving me to Virginia. 
And I got a call from my mom, like as the moving trucks were on the way to Atlanta. And uh, she said, hey, you know, we're in Vegas. Your dad's in the hospital and things are not looking good. And I said, oh, gosh, you know, I have a million things going on, but please, you know, make sure you keep me up to date. And she said, Trey, you're not hearing me. You need to be in the car. You need to be in a plane. You need to get here now. Or you're not going to get to say goodbye to your dad. So I ran wow, to the airport. That's terrible. Yeah, no, it was I'm not. Sorry a, about that. By <laughs> not the a good call to get. So my brother and I flew to Vegas. We brought my dad home, but not in the way that we wanted to. And then I had the choice to make: Do I go to AOL and pursue the career that I am getting really good at, and people are starting to take notice, or do I come home and take care of the obligations of the family? I want to say it was an easy decision, but Maverick, it was not. You know, it was a selfish, you know, discussion I had to have with myself. But at the end of the day, I said, um, you know, my dad always was there for me. He was never, he never told me no on important things that I wanted to do, whether they made sense to him or not. I always knew I had an obligation, a familial obligation. I just thought I would be the one to determine when I could sort of repay that. And it just didn't turn out that way. And so, I came home, uh, stabilized the business, started some other businesses. You know, we rolled all of that into a family office last year. It took about 15 years to get to the place that we wanted to be. So it was good. And then two years ago, sorry, this is again long-winded, but I just want to sketch in the whole story. No, it's okay. I gave you the floor. I want you to tell the story for sure. Okay, cool. So I went to a conference, and the guy who was the producer of the Kid President videos that were popular three or four years ago uh, he was a speaker at the same conference, and he made this statement, and it hit me like somebody had hit me with a sledgehammer. And he said, your only moral obligation is to be who you needed when you were younger. And that really sat on my shoulders. And so I said to myself over the next, I don't know, six months, I thought about it almost constantly for like six months. And, you know, I did work at the homeless shelter and, you know, gave money to charity and all, you know, just try to be a good person type stuff. Yeah. But I didn't grow up homeless, you know? So that wasn't answering that moral call. I grew up privileged enough that I didn't, you know, have those struggles. And so I really wasn't scratching the itch that I needed to. And when I asked myself the question, like, who did you need when you were younger? It was almost immediately and a very emotional reaction that I had to the question. And the answer was, the first time I sat in my dad's chair, I felt like a little kid dangling his legs in daddy's chair, you know? And I remember that afternoon Googling, what does a CEO do? Because I didn't have any idea. And I didn't want anybody to know that. So that's why I sat down and said, here's my answer from, you know, from 30 years or 25 years of watching other people who are really good at it and then figuring out for myself what I thought the right answers were. And I put all of those into the book. And so we called the book, A CEO Only Does Three Things, How to Find Your Focus in the C-Suite, and those three things, which I know you're going to ask me anyway, are culture, people, and numbers. Okay. Wow. And so what year did you start writing the book? I think I put pen to paper in 2018 because I had a group inside of a mastermind who said, Trey, would you take and do a master class on what a CEO is supposed to do? Because we are all in the same boat. So I did the master class, and then I thought, well, there's probably a book in all of this material and so in 2019, I took a week off, went to the beach, and put my hand to the writing. And then I did that three or four more times in 2019. And then when the pandemic hit, I had two choices. I said, I can go be a pilot because I really want a private pilot license. And I haven't done that yet. <laughs> That's so funny. I believe I talked to um, someone else from the Mastermind group as well, and he is the private pilot. Oh, okay. 
So uh, I wanted to do that or finish the book. So I opted to finish the book and uh, hopefully I'll be a pilot this year. But uh, so I got the book done. The publisher, uh, I had three publishers who were very good publishers. I went with the one that was sort of least known, but has been the most helpful. And I've been really thrilled about the reception that the book has gotten. Yeah, I mean, look, it was an Amazon bestseller. That's amazing. Well, and I have a question for you, and it's off track. It's totally off topic. It's not one that I have in my notes for you. But when you were the youngest in the room, going back to your initial start of the story, when you were the youngest in the room at WebMD and all these companies, what was that like for you? Because, and I'll give you the reason why I'm asking you that question, is as a young entrepreneur myself, I find myself being the youngest in the room uh, in today's world on the phone in a lot of conversations conversations and people can recognize, you know, when you're young and I'll be the first to say that I don't know everything. I don't know nearly everything. Life life gives you the knowledge that comes with that because of the experience you're going to take on in the future. But I want to know, sometimes people react to me differently, right? I'll give you an example and we're off track, but I think it's important for the people to hear about. So I was sitting somewhere the other day and I heard someone on the phone arguing with their husband, this nice lady. She's arguing with their husband about their tax work because the, her job did not take enough withholdings out. So they were going to have to come up with the money. And, you know, I stopped her and I said, not that I'm eavesdropping on you, but you kind of were talking pretty loudly. You know, my family's in the tax business. I'm going to do this out of the kindness of my heart. You know, send over, once you guys are done doing your returns on TurboTax, send them over to our office and I'll have one of our CPAs look at it at no charge to you guys, just because you're going through this. We see a lot of the time where the employers aren't taking out enough withholding and I just want to help you because it seems like you're stressed out. And her reaction to me at first was very hesitant because I am 22, but I would say I look maybe that I'm 18 or 19 years old. I don't look 22, which I'll be thankful for in the future, everyone says, right? right. So the reception to me was very standoffish at first. And then being the talkative person I am, I sort of eased her in and made her feel a little bit more comfortable. But going back to why I'm asking that question, did you have any situations like that where people looked at you differently or spoke to you differently or treated you in a different manner because you were the youngest in the room? Yeah, I think to some extent I did. So I'm a bit of an old soul. So even when I was 24, I could carry conversations on with you know somebody in their 40s or 50s. I'm inquisitive. People love to talk about themselves. I've always had the habit of asking questions about themselves, you know, other people and that sort of thing, very much like you are, Maverick. For whatever reason, and I think I know the reason, but for whatever reason, I've always been someone that other people liked to mentor. And my thinking on that is if somebody is nice enough to give me the benefit of their opinion and time, I'm going to do everything I can to maximize that, to use that in some way. And I think that becomes visible to people in some way. And so people have always been very good to me. I've, had, I've just been so blessed with good mentors my whole life. So I would feel out of place in those boardrooms sometimes for sure, but I would keep my mouth shut. You know, I would try to add value where I could. And sometimes all that was was me watching other people and taking notes about what I thought their body language said or, you know, that sort of thing. And then I would share it if asked at the right time with my team and, you know, if there was somebody that needed to take notes or get coffee or any, I never thought I was too good to do any of that stuff. Uh, and I would do that. And I do that today, for example. I have a friend that we met. He introduced me to somebody and the guy's worth like $850 million the other day. This guy has something to teach me. He's three years younger than me, but does that matter? Like, am I not going to get up and go see that guy and get coffee and, you know, make a nice experience for us so that I can 
learn from him? Of course not. I'm going to do those things. So I think that those are the three things that sort of made it where I was available to be in those rooms and people were helpful and um, had a little bit of imposter syndrome, but you know, that goes away with experience. Yeah, no. And I appreciate that answer to that question because again, it's, I'm I'm literally laughing because it's so funny how similar we are. Uh, I'm an old soul as well. Everyone always tells me that, you know, a lot of my friends are older and a lot of them I look up to and, you know, some of them I may not look up to like that, but a lot of them, you know, I see what they've done in life and with their business and how they've made connections and they've made their resources apparent and they're willing to help me out because I literally feel the exact same way about what you said, you know, Maybe they see a potential in me that is apparent to them because of the way I present myself or because of exactly what you said. I never feel like I'm too good enough to go and do something for someone else, no matter if they're lesser than me in terms of financially, if you want to use your example, or if they're more than me. I never feel that way, right? And I think that's something that all of the listeners should take away from this conversation. But that's a very interesting take. You know, like you said, I like what you said. I kept my mouth shut when I needed to, and I took notes and I observed because that's how I learned a lot in life is just observing and meetings in life critical situations, how people handle things. You you can learn a lot from being in the moment, but watching the moment and watch what others are doing as well. So again, I really appreciate that answer, Trey. But let's go back to the book now. We took a little veer off there, but I felt <laughs> it was a very important conversation. And it was something I wanted to ask you because you're a successful person in life, it seems like mentally and physically and financially. So I was curious about that because The more I looked into you, the more you inspire me as a young individual with a lot of motivation. But going back to the book now, so give the uh, listeners the three pillars again, one more time of the book. Yeah, three pillars where CEO only does three things, um, culture, people, and numbers. And those three things are interdependent. So you can't say, well, I, I believe in one, but not the other two, or I'll work on one, but the other two will fix themselves. Not the case. The CEO is the only person in the organization who has the authority and the responsibility to work on those three things constantly. Got it. And just real briefly, again, I'll give you the floor because I could ask you the questions, but you can break it down better. You want to give a quick, brief, brief background of those three pillars and what you think the most important things from them are? Yeah, absolutely. So culture is the ethical environment in which we live, work, and play. It is the outward expression of what we value in our beliefs, literally our values. And so if you're going to build a culture, and there's a little secret for entrepreneurship that I've only just sort of been able to articulate, you know, relying on some of the people that mentor me, and it is this. When you start a company, you're not really starting a way to make money. There are millions of ways to make money. And it's a lot less stressful to go work for somebody else to make money, by the way. So entrepreneurs, you know, basically are unemployable by anyone else. I mean, that's the core definition of an entrepreneur, really. But, you know, we start companies in order to show the world that our value system is one that is worthy of respect. Like, we want to project our values, the things that we think are right, into the world and have the expression be in a company. That's what we're trying to do. And I think that's often overlooked. And lots of people that go into business that don't sort of have that core motivation, they really don't make it very far. They, they might start a lifestyle business or something of that nature. But if you get that right, other people will flock to it. And so the culture is exactly that. It's the expression of our internally held values. And we want those values to show up in the behaviors of our people. And that's the second pillar. 
So our people are those that are on the journey with us, right? They are of the same mission that we want these values to be true in the world. Maybe they're not true in every corner of, you know, of darkest Africa or of, uh, you know, the jungles of uh, Vietnam or something like that. But wherever I am, these values are going to be true. And wherever I can convert other people to my way of thinking, these values will be true. And so people is the next uh, thing that we work on. And then those people inside that culture produce results, and those results, we use a shorthand term of numbers, and I don't mean hard numbers, although I also mean hard numbers. I mean all the numbers. So soft numbers, hard numbers, anything that we can measure and manage, you know, we should be looking at from a numbers standpoint. And honest to God, what I really have come to understand about numbers in my 20 years of management uh, experience is this. Your numbers are proof that your people understand what the values are supposed to produce. Wow, that's a great way to put it, that it really is. I think that putting it that way makes an employee feel more, I know today everyone uses team member, I'm part of a team, I'm not an employee, I'm a team member, but I think that really knocks it out of the ballpark and makes an employee feel a certain way that they're not just someone that's helping produce at the top level, that they're actually part of, like you said, the overall numbers. And I think that just opened my eyes 100% to that part of it. Yeah. And that's one of the great discoveries that I think I've made is, you know, when I go in and rah-rah the culture and choose the best teammates and that sort of thing, and yet nothing gets done, you know, the big numbers don't get put up, it's evidence to me that something is off in the equation. So, um, you know, numbers are derivative of the other two things. That makes sense, 100%. Moving along with this idea of your book, and you talked about three pillars, so I'm gonna maybe ask you a question that may or may not be a bit more challenging for you. If you had to teach a course at a college-level education that was a mandatory class that had to be taken by every student in America, what would be the one thing you would want every student to take away from that course about being a CEO? That the CEO is the worst delegator in the organization and they have to be better at that. <laughs> That's not said very artfully, but you caught me by surprise a bit on that. The core job of a CEO is to delegate to others and to hold them accountable against the results that need to be achieved. And that's something that is really hard to do because most CEOs are, are givers, right? They're action-oriented people. And if something's not getting done, it doesn't hurt a CEO's feelings to jump in, roll up his or her sleeves, and get that work done. But in reality, are they doing that work or the work they're supposed to do? And what I find in most of my clients is that they spend uh, fully 96%, I made that up, but fully, you know, over 90% of their work doing the jobs that they've already paid other people to do. Got it. No, that's a great takeaway from a course. I think, honestly, I think the way you, you said the answer immediately was it may not have been the most proper way to say it, but it was real, right? That was your first answer. That was your initial answer. And I think, listen, that I understood it right then and there. And I think that has a lot to say about that you truly believe these things, right? It would be different if you were going to say, uh, um, you know, let me think about that for a second. You thought for maybe two seconds and then you said it because you believe in what you're writing about. You believe in how you're running these companies. You believe in the idea of being a CEO in a certain way is going to be the most efficient, whether that's you measure that in time or you measure that financially or you measure that successfully, however you measure that. So that's real. But 
I want to go a little bit further into this idea of being a CEO and also, of course, parallels with your book. So your current position, right, is running your family's insurance company, Taylor Insurance Services. I know you said you have a few ventures outside of that and you do a few different things, but is that your main focus on a day-to-day basis? So it was up until 18 months ago. And so then we rolled all of our holdings into what we call a family office. And so now my job, I've stepped up just one level in the organization organization. I'm still the CEO of Taylor Insurance and some of the real estate companies that we have, but we are bringing along management teams to come in and backfill me in those positions. And we're close on the insurance company. Got it. So overall, how many employees are underneath you, or I should say team members are underneath you? 19 core members of the company. And then, you know, a cloud of uh, contractors that we use when we need them. Got it. So because the book is fairly recent and you just said 18 months ago, you know, if you've experienced this change and you've published the book and I'm sure there have been revisions on it before you published it, looking back now on today, Thursday, April 29th, 2021, is there anything you wish you had mentioned in the book that you have learned since then? Because, and I'll preface this by saying on my podcast, one of the slogans is always be learning, right? I'm a true believer. The second a person thinks that they know it all is the second they've hit a brick wall physically, mentally, successfully, however you want to measure. I always use those three as an example, but they've hit a brick wall because they think they know it all, right? So is there anything you wish that you included in that book because you're like, wow, I'm just now realizing this because you're always learning as a CEO. Is there anything that comes to mind? There are two things that come to mind. One, in the numbers section, I have received a whole bunch more very basic questions about KPIs, OKRs and things of that nature that I think for, would, for people that yeah. sorry to interrupt for people that don't know what those things are will you just give what the acronym is yeah so KPI is like the key performance indicator it's the number and the story behind the number so what is it that we're describing with this key performance indicator so for example if you're in a a law firm one of your KPIs is uh, your number of billable hours in a year you know uh, you look at your revenue you look at your expenses you look at all of those kinds of things but then you go deeper with KPIs as well. So for my sales team, for example, they have to make five different contacts with companies a day in order to, for them to fill the pipeline sufficient to hit our revenue numbers. So that weekly contact report number becomes a KPI for the organization so that I know if I look one day and that you know we made two contacts instead of 35 that we should have made, then at some point my sales are going to suffer for that. So KPIs are the sort of cute name for the numbers that we are tracking and the story behind those numbers. Got it. Thank you for that breakdown. I think a lot of the times it helps if people don't know, they're kind of like sit there and Google, but I'd rather them hear it right from the person. So I always like to interrupt and have have the guests break that down. But listen, Trey, there's a lot of interviews with you uh, focused on the book. And I love the book. Like I said, I want to read it, but I want to switch the conversation a little bit to more of an advice-based conversation because the guests that come on the show, they are great at one thing. They're great at being the best of the best in their industry in whatever industry that may be. But I always like to focus on the advice because of my audience. And before we switch topics, I always give the guests the floor to mention anything that you want to talk about in relation to the topic. So now would be a time if you think there's something about the book, if there was a question you wish I had asked, go ahead, feel free to say that and answer that question. If there's not, we'll totally, we'll move on to the next portion of the show. I'll tell you one of the most interesting things that has 
come out of discussions around being interviewed a lot on the book and doing stage presentations and that sort of thing. And, and the number one question that I hear is, what's the difference between a great CEO and a good CEO? Obviously, I read your book, I become a good CEO, but what makes me a great CEO? And I love the question because it really shows the heart of the questioner. And the answer is really quick and simple. Great CEOs, great leaders of all stripes. So this doesn't have to be confined to the uh, C-suite. This could be anybody doing any kind of work at any level of an organization, be it nonprofit or business, doesn't matter. Great CEOs, great leaders have a dual ability. In relation to other people, we have the ability to precept gifts that inside someone else that that person has not come to see as true for themselves yet, right? So it's like perception, but we're seeing it in advance. And then we evoke those gifts from the person. Evoke is a Latin, it comes from a Latin word, ex voca, to call from within. And so if you think about it, a great CEO is someone who says to you before you know it, you know, you are really gifted in this one thing. And I know that the more that you do of that thing, the better you're going to become until everybody knows you're really good at that one thing. And depending on when that is shared with you in your life, your entire life trajectory can change because those things become true for you. And that's what great leaders do for people. And I think it's a really important point to make. No, that is a very, very important point to make. And I think, again, I'm learning so much from the interview just myself because that is, I talk about two things. I told you the first slogan that I always say on the show, which is always be learning. The second is always lead by example. And you just perfectly put into a picture what leading by example in a corporate environment looks like finding that person that may be doing something else, but you see that they have the opportunity to excel and succeed in something else or in that one thing and pushing them and pulling that out of them. And I think it also is a big confidence booster. So quick background before, I'll make a very brief, which is why I'm saying this, before you know, I, I made the decision to go into my family's business and put my life on that track, my dad and I had a deal. Go to five other industries. I worked in a steel industry, architectural design, all of these different industries. I worked at, but something I saw just like you, I would listen and I would watch people, especially, you know, the head execs at these companies, whenever they would point out something that someone did well, uh, that was on a lower level than them, that always brought a smile to their face and I think always pushed them that much more. So while that is 100% making you a great leader by not only making you more efficient in whatever your business is doing, because now you've found someone that is really, really good at that one thing or those few things, it's also gonna push your team member to go that much harder because they're like, wow, someone actually believes in me and sees something in myself that I might not see as well. So I think that's a very, very, very great thing that you brought up. I'm glad you added it to the show. And I thank you for, again, showing me something else that I'm going to take away from this and use in my life, in my business life, even in my general life, right? If I see that someone's good at something, if my friend's good at something, hey, stick with that because that always feels good to know that you have someone that supports you, that sees you in this certain light. So for sure, hats off to you, Trey, for that one. I appreciate that. Well, thanks for that. And you know, Maverick, it's really interesting to me that when I do this from the stage, I just did this a couple of weeks ago in Tampa and tears all over the room. But not tears of sadness, but tears of sweetness and compassion, remembering the person who did that for you, the person that looked into you and said, you have this gift, you should share it with the world, and you're going to be great at it. And people immediately were dissolved 
in tears. And not one or two people. I mean, a lot of people were dabbing their eyes over that, which is testament to how important it is when it's done for us. And so I invite all of the listeners to just go out tomorrow and try it out on somebody. You know, try look into someone for a gift, call that gift out of them, and thank them for having that gift. Absolutely. I love you, Trey. You are seriously a great person, a great leader. So now let's get into some advice because, like I'll say it again, you are the best of the best. So the advice section of the show is something I usually touch on with every guest because I think people learn from others' experiences. And if someone else is at a place where someone strives to be at, they're going to take a lot away from it. So if a college kid came up to you today and said, listen, I'm about to graduate, Mr. Taylor. I have no idea what the hell I'm going to do when I'm done with school. What would your advice for them be? I think the first thing that I would tell somebody is to reject the near-term fear that you have to be employed to be valuable and on the path. Nobody figures this stuff out until they're deep in their 30s, period. Nobody really settles into the life that they really want to get good at until their early to mid-30s. It's just the truth of the matter. I think you should try several different things. But I think also something that I stumbled on when I got out of college was to realize that I had just as much de-education to do as I had education, right? Because I knew that I had been given a worldview and a perspective of people that were different than the life that I was going to lead. Like an academic's life is very different from an entrepreneur's life. So I spent that next year reading all of the books that would never have been assigned in school, you know? So I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, for example, which is a terribly written book. It's not a well-written book at all, but the value and the power of the ideas is very good and really shapes the correct mindset of what it takes to acquire wealth, and then you can do good things with the wealth in doing that. So that's the first piece of advice is, like, go educate yourself on the things that you need to do. And if that means taking a job, then take that job, but take the job that allows you to do that. So if it means being a barista for a year, there's nothing wrong with that. Go do that for a year so that you can figure some things out. Some of the kids that I've mentored, I call them kids, but some of the young men that I've mentored in that space, you know, they figured out how to buy a house for no money down because they read a book that said, here's how you buy a house for no money down. At the age of 23, I didn't have a house at the age of 23. You know, and so they've been able to figure some things out instead of the corporate sort of academic track of go find a job and sort of sell your life in 40-hour increments until you figure out that you hate it and you want to go do something that you like, and then you're 42 years old and you have big changes and momentum against you. So I'm pretty passionate about we should give ourselves time to figure out can we make some really good entrepreneurial decisions early in life when our risks are low. Yeah, no, that's great. And something actually, do you know Brad Olashansky? I believe he's in the mastermind group, but I could I know be Brad. wrong. I know Brad well. Okay. So something Brad said to me, and I'll bring it up again, since you bring up, you know, at age 42, you might realize to all of the listeners, because I know I look at the statistics, a lot of young people, like I've said, I think that's the third time I've said it on the show thus far. Take the risk now. Brad said something to me that I will forever remember, and I literally live my life like this now um, in, in a business sense. You will have different responsibilities when you're 42. You will maybe be married. You will maybe have a family. You will have other responsibilities that come first before being able to take that risk. So when Trey says, 
Take it now. Find out who you are right in this day and time so that you can educate yourself from that de-education. I love that standpoint. I've literally never heard of that perspective before and I love it. And take the risk now because when you're older, you may not be able to. You might have a family that you have to put food on the table for. You might have a car payment and house payment so that your, your family needs to live in there. They need to get transportation every day. You don't know what the future holds, but now in your 20s, in your early 20s, take that risk because you might not have another time like it in your life. And uh, Trey, would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. And I think about it in these terms, Maverick, that you know, when I'm 22 coming out of college, I can be a millionaire astronaut farmer, right? I can do anything I want to do. The entire world and my entire life is ahead of me. As I go down my life's path, I'm going to make choices that close off some of those doors, For me, this was a really hard thing to accept until I was in my 30s because I wanted all options at all times, even if I didn't really want to be an astronaut or a fisherman or a farmer or whatever, you know? And so as I go through my life choices, I have to make sure that the doors that are closing, they're closing because I really am making the active choice that I don't want to pursue that. And uh, in doing that, it's just as much as choosing what I want to do is what I don't want to do. And I think the de-education process is exactly that. Like eventually you're going to whittle down all of the choices in front of you to represent the one person that you were supposed to become the whole time. That's great. Moving on and switching a little bit, I always talk about failures on the show. I'm 22, I'm young, but I've started some businesses that maybe haven't made it like I thought they were going to, and that I categorize as a failure. And I think in order to succeed from every successful person that I've had the honor to interview, they say failure is essential for success. You fail and you get up and you become stronger, but you need to learn from the failure so it doesn't happen again. So I always like to ask, do you have any real life examples of failure as a successful businessman that you would be willing to share so the audience can and hear someone that got past that failure. Yeah, and I'm not scared of failure. As a matter of fact, one of our 13 core values at Taylor Insurance, which we call the Beatitudes, number 11 is be intrepid. It is take the risk because the cost of failure is not as high as the cost of security. It never is. So, uh, you know, I have, uh, we opened a franchise property and casualty business at one point and worked it as hard as we knew how to work it to make it successful, and could not make it. Just, it wasn't the kind of people we were. It wasn't the way we were used to doing business. Our hiring ability in that office was not as strong as it needed to be. I don't think I was willing to allocate the capital necessary to put it on life support. And so at the end of the day, I have to look at that, and and I do have to categorize that as a failure, you know, with a little F. But it doesn't bother me. I mean, I put 200000 bucks maybe in investment in it, and I earned 190000 in income from, a, you know, over three years or something. So it was three grand a year that I lost, 300 bucks a month. And that 300 bucks was tuition for me. It taught me, don't go buy a franchise. That's not for you. It's good for some people. I'm not saying it isn't. But for Trey, it wasn't a good thing. I don't want to be told how to do the business. And so, you know, that was a good learning and experience for me. So I always think of failure as uh, tuition. So that's the first one. And the second one's more personal is, uh, you know, I was married early in my life and divorced early in my life. And it was a failure. It was a moral failure of mine of not being able to sort of keep a marriage together that we had a lot of trouble on. I take the responsibility. I'm sure she would as well. But it was also a failure of jumping into something because I 
thought I was expected to do it instead of really thinking through and finding my happiness in it. And uh, as a result, I think the, the universe will punish that vague wish. Trey, I can't even tell you how much I love. The first answer is great, right? Because companies fail and I hear a lot about that on the show, but I like to bring in different examples. But the second one, that is what everyone should be taking note of because here you have someone who we've had a whole conversation about business, about, you know, really about the focus of business, what it takes to be great in business and some pillars that are essential for someone to be a, a great CEO, but that is showing that you are a real human. And that is most important than anything because I think a lot of times people see these business people as robots, right? They get, they go, they work, they come home, and you don't see anything else of that. But that is a human. That is shows that you have heart, that you have soul, that you have integrity, that you have all those things. And I that is my favorite answer of that question that I've had thus far. Although it's unfortunate that you've gone through that, you've learned from it, and you grew from it as an individual that had maybe nothing to do about business, or maybe some things did have to do about business. Maybe it was about your time management. Maybe it was about something else that you were giving too much time to your business, not enough time to the marriage. Whatever it may be, I'm making assumptions here, but I think that is one of my favorite. I don't think that is one of my favorite answers, Trey. So really, I, that, that's a great one. And you all that are listening right now should take something away from that answer. I appreciate that, Trey. Thank you for opening up and sharing that with everyone. Sure. We're winding down to the end of the interview, and I have three last questions for you. The first is, so I usually ask every guest that comes on the show, you know, how did they learn about things like taxes and insurance? But you sure are the exception because having gone to law school, <laughs> studying tax, and now the CEO of an insurance services company, you probably had some ways that people can assume of how you learned about these things. So instead, I will ask you, where would you point to someone besides this podcast? Because that's the goal of the podcast to teach what's not taught in school at any level of education, like taxes, mortgages, insurance, et cetera. But where do you think should be the best place for someone to start to, to really learn like the in-depth version, right? I always say like, this is giving you that ground level, take this ground level and build from it. So where do you think someone can build from this? Yeah, I don't know if I'm even the right one to ask the modified question, because again, I never picked up a book outside of law school or, you know, uh, becoming a licensed professional in my home state of learning to sell insurance. If I can, I'll just take a liberty and answer the question slightly differently. Anytime I want to learn how to do something well, I go find a group of people who are doing it and plug myself in. So we launched the family office 18 months ago. And, you know, the first thing I did was to go find a mastermind of family offices. And, you know, there's guys in that group that have a $400 million family office, and there's guys that have a $10 million. I don't actually know the numbers, but, you know, I get on those calls. I network with those guys. I have one-on-ones with them, and I share with them my challenges and hear from them theirs and pick up reading assignments and all kinds of things like that. So you just have to be super proactive. So if you want to learn about taxes and insurance and how they impact entrepreneurs, go get around a lot of entrepreneurs and learn who they learn those things from as well. That's great. Totally love that you modified the question and still found a way to answer it. I think that shows how you are a great problem solver and probably adds to why you are as successful as you are. But Trey, as a family man, as a CEO, as someone has that has their hands in a lot of different pots, how do you find yourself able to manage and balance your time? This is a really thing that I nerd out on, but I'm a huge fan of productivity system called Getting Things Done by David Allen. 
He wrote the first book, which was called Getting Things Done, GTD. It has this whole cult built around it where people are super efficient with their time and all of that kind of thing. The second book that he wrote, which is a lot harder to get your hands on, is called Making It All Work. That's one of the best books written in the past 50 years. It's really hard to find because it didn't Who's sell Who's that well. by again? David Allen. He invented GTD. David Allen. Yeah. Inbox Zero is a concept of his. And, you know, he's just got this idea that these bits that we carry around with us are really heavy. And we have so many millions of open loops at all times that it really stresses people out and, and crushes them and burns out and that sort of thing. So he's got an entire system, GTD, uh, getting things done system on how to get out of that. And the one that was really, the second book was a little bit more spiritual in nature to say, like, there's a human toll for you to, you know, live inside your inbox 24-7. And here's how you get out of that. So I use that to be more productive. The second thing, and I still can't even believe this is legal, really, is I use a, a VA, an EA, executive assistant. My EA is amazing, right? She works only for three CEOs, one guy in Miami, me, and then some other person that I don't know about. She's phenomenal. She's available all the time. She's English. She lives in Pig's Knuckle, Virginia, or some rural town in Virginia that I've never heard of. I've never laid eyes on her. I don't know anything about her, you know, as far as um, what she looks like or where she lives or works or anything of that nature. We've been in business together for six years now. And she's phenomenal, right? She's really good at what she does. Actually, Maverick, if you've scheduled with me, you've interacted with Jillian, right? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure I talked to her via email a few times. Yeah, and she's really good. She keeps me completely between the lines because literally 20 or 30% of my week was scheduling my week. And I don't do that anymore at all. I walk into a hotel, the Wall Street Journal's on order the room has a bathtub. It's on the second floor, if at all possible. I mean, everything that I love about traveling and the things that I make, she does all of that for me. Six weeks after I hired her, I noticed on my wife's calendar that she had an appointment with Jillian. And I said, what is that? And she said, Jillian and I talk every week. I said, what for? She said, because Jillian wants to make sure that you prioritize family stuff like you said you wanted to. And so she does that. And just someone who's that proactive. Now, two other points. One, I now use VAs for millions of different things. My graphic designer, who is stellar, lives in Moldova. I couldn't point it out on a map, but he is dynamite. Last night before I went to bed, I sent him some political stuff that I'm working on and asked him to do some logo design work. This morning when I woke up and came to my office at 8.30, the work was done, right? So while I slept, he was working. It was beautiful. Um, so the idea of being extensible, now here's the real key. I pay them between, I don't know, $25, $35 an hour, but I only pay for what they work. So every week, my assistant, you know, will submit to me maybe a $300 bill if it was a super busy week, but most of the time it's $100, $150. And there's none of us that can't afford that when we get busy enough to do it. Jillian and I did a um, segregation analysis of my calendar before she came to work for me, and after. The first year, I had 6x more kept appointments than the first year after she came to work with me. Every year after that, it's been at least 8x over what I was doing for myself. That is honestly amazing. That is great. I love the hotel too. I love that second floor. He wants a bathtub. Hook this man tray up. He deserves it. <laughs> she knows exactly what to do and how to negotiate it. And you know she likes to do that kind of stuff. And it all equals nice life for me. 
that's a mutually beneficial relationship right there. She's helping you and you'll forever praise her for that. And she loves to do it. That's great. Well, for the last question I have for you, it is one that I ask every guest. It's how I end the show. And that is Trey. What do you wish you knew when you were in your early 20s? I wish I knew that a CEO only did three things. We've established that already. (laughs) Yeah. And I wish I knew just how severe your limiting beliefs can be on what you're willing to try. Just the idea that you expand on that. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say expand on that a little bit. Just the idea that you think that you can't or you won't like something is often enough to keep us from doing that thing just to give it a real honest-to-God sort of college try. And in 2015, I had a sort of spiritual awakening almost and said to myself, instead of me saying no to most things, I'm going to say yes to everything for 12 months. And then I will evaluate and see what that looks like. And I am a different person. My world is different now. The people in my life are a much higher quality of people because I simply say yes to everything. I say yes to every single meeting that is requested of me. As long as I can get it on the calendar, it will be on the calendar. It might be two months from now, but it will be there. But I say yes to everything. And so when I go to travel, if someone brings octopus and I've never had that before, I have it. You know, I don't have to love it, but I give it a real shot and I say yes to things now. And um, I really wish I could sit young Trey down and say, you don't know what you don't like yet. Go figure it out in a lot of different ways. Business, personal relationships, food, travel, all those things. Interesting. You're changing my perspective. You're making me think about the way I live my life with that answer. Again, that's probably another one of my top three favorite, what do you wish you knew? That's a great answer. And it's totally random. You brought up octopus because I do not eat any seafood. And if someone put it in front of me, I would tell them to screw themselves. I'm not trying that. (laughs) But after hearing you, I might say, hey, you know, let me take a bite of it because I keep that in the back of my head. But So I teach the kids the same thing right now, Maverick. Like you don't have to like it, but you have to try it seven times before you tell me you don't like it. And my kids, they don't know. They think dad is always right, you know, so they moan and groan about it, but they try things seven times before. And then after they try it seven times, if they don't like it, I don't make them try it again. You know, they've given it a real shot at that point. So you do the same thing. I will. Listen, after, literally, I'm not saying this because you're on my podcast and I'm trying to schmooze you or I'm trying to kiss your ass. You have really inspired me to become a better version of myself, both individually, like mentally and in a relationship and in my business world, right? Just literally, I'm just thinking about the saying yes to everything. And that's something I'm going to start to do because I do say no to not a lot of things, but I should say yes more. It's something I should do because after hearing what you said, it's probably going to better my life out in the long run. It really will. But Trey, I can't even tell you, thank you so much for coming on the show. This interview has been one of my favorites because I have learned so much, which means I know the audience will learn a lot from it too. Because the reason I started this was I realized I had a little bit more insight onto into things because of the way I grew up, because I was very fortunate and very blessed to watch my dad grow his business. And I was always involved in these things. So I was like, hey, why not bring on people? Because I can't teach you about it, but I can ask the questions that I know people want the answers to. So seriously, you are the man. Let's talk soon. I hope to stay in touch. And thank you again for coming on the show. Maverick, I've really enjoyed it. I appreciate the praise that you've given me, the spotlight that you put on the book. 
I really appreciate that. But just always appreciate a good conversation. So thanks for doing what you're doing. Yeah, no problem. Talk soon. I know I probably sound like a broken record after every interview. I say that was an amazing interview. That was an over-the-top interview, but it's because I truly mean it. I think every guest that comes on the show has a lot of useful information tied in with an amazing success story that we all have a lot to learn from and can utilize and use in our life, right? So I will say it. That was an over-the-top interview. Trey is truly one of the best of the best CEOs out there, and he clearly has a deep understanding of what it takes to actually be one of the best of the best CEOs. Each episode, there is always, always, always so much to learn from, like I said a few seconds ago. And I hope, like I just said again, that you all are absorbing as much as you can because this information is only going to help you in life. I don't know it all. I'll never know it all. I'm only 22 years old, but what I can do is bring these guests on the show to educate myself and all of you listening about these topics that I find useful and you find useful as well. Of course, people are going to find different episodes more useful than the next, depending on their interests, depending on what their career is or what their dreams and aspiration is. But nonetheless, there is always so much to learn from. Always remembered, success is measured in different ways. There are multiple ways to be successful. For some, that's mental success. For others, that's finding true happiness. Or maybe some look at it as physical success when they look in the mirror and they're happy with their body. And of course, there's always financial success, which I think a lot of times people correlate and relate to when you think of successful or success. So know that your success might be measured than the next person, and that is perfectly okay. That's it for this week, everyone. Thank you all for being the best of the best listeners and subscribers. And hey, like I always say, tell a family member, a friend, a coworker, a random person walking on the sidewalk to listen to the show and to subscribe to the show. No matter what age you are, you should always be learning and always be leading by example. You just listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. This is the best of the best, Maverick's Guide to Success. Have a great weekend, everyone.